This morning we continue in our exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews and we come uh, in this series of sermons to chapter 10 and we'll be considering together verses 5, 6, and 7. So our text is Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 to 7. We've just read the whole chapter. Begins in verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. The title of our sermon is A Divine Pledge. You have no doubt heard, if not said yourself, something along the lines of, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall on some famous occasion to see and overhear the events of some important event. As Christians, we might think to ourselves, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at one of the ancient councils of Nicaea or Chalcedon. You might think in the Reformation era in 1529, having been at the Marburg Colloquy, where Luther and Zwingli and Bootser and Oakley and Potius and others were gathered together to debate the nature of the Lord's presence at the Lord's Supper. You might think it would have been very intriguing to have been a fly on the wall or to have overheard or seen the interview between John Knox and Queen Mary. You might even think in terms of civil history of all sorts of things. You know, for example, uh, being at the Virginia Convention for the Ratification of the Constitution and hearing that heroic and sublimely eloquent Patrick Henry, the anti-federalist, contending with James Madison. And we could multiply examples like that. We know what that means, how interesting, intriguing, fascinating it would be to have overheard or been witness to some great occasions of the past. Well, this morning, we are given the privilege of being invited to be spectators of a far superior transaction than any of those that I have just mentioned. Indeed, in this passage, we are invited to listen in on an interchange within the Godhead itself. And to listen in on an interchange regarding the greatest event the history of the world has ever known. The incarnation of the Son of God. You'll remember the context in which we find ourselves here in verses 1 to 4 as we noted last week. Uh, The Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is setting before us the utter insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices to actually secure the atonement of sin in themselves. And so we saw the insufficiency of those sacrifices, and that is set by way of contrast now in verses 5 and following to the full sufficiency of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's leading up really to the punchline in verse 14 For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the connection between these two, the insufficiency of the one on one hand and the full sufficiency of Christ on the other is seen in verse 9, where it says, 
uh, in the second half of that verse, he taketh away the first that he may establish the second. And so in the flow of this whole inspired line of thought, we have a divine pledge set before us to mark uh, at the onset of the consideration of this sufficiency of Jesus Christ to show us the stupendous glory that lies behind it. And we're going to note three things with the Lord's help this morning. First of all, we see a divine preparation in verse 5. So first of all, a divine preparation. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Divine preparation. The word wherefore, children, you know, marks a conclusion, uh, that there is a conclusion being drawn, that since, as first verse says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now what we have in our passage is a direct quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, which we read earlier uh, in the service. So our text in Hebrews 10 is basically, with a few alterations that we'll note, the text that is found in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. And so we're learning something here, aren't we? We've been prepared for this in the sermon we heard a couple Wednesdays ago on Christ in the Psalms. But we're learning here in Hebrews 10 itself that as we read Psalm 40, as we sing Psalm 40, we're actually hearing the voice of the Son of God. The voice of the Son of God speaking to God the Father. And that's what's being highlighted. We know that's the case because here in Hebrews 10, we are taught it and assured of it. Wherefore, when he that is Christ cometh into the world, he that is Christ saith, and all that that follows there. And so recognizing that from the onset gives us, there's a hush, if you will, that should come over our, our own hearts and minds. There's a sense of, well, we, we, are, we are now tiptoeing into very hallowed ground, that we are, are being given audience to a federal agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit regarding the salvation of the elect, that we are actually having peeled back for us what would be otherwise entirely unseen, and we are able to peer, as God has revealed it, into the covenant of redemption, first of all, into that intertrinitarian covenant, which which took place before time, which took place within the council of the Godhead himself. And this should create a hush that comes over us because, relatively speaking, there's so little given to us by way of revelation, so little that takes us actually into the throne room before the the heavens and earth came into existence that enable us to peer with our created, finite, sinful eyes into such sublime mysteries. And so because there is, relatively speaking, 
so little that is given to us, there's a sense of anticipation. This is privilege indeed. Who should be allowed to peer into such things as this? To be taken back to before the foundation of the world into the councils of the eternal three. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. We're told in verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he, he saith, In the fullness of time, the Lord was pleased to send forth his only begotten Son, the eternal Son of the eternal Father, as we so often say. He came to fulfill all that they had pledged within themselves in the everlasting covenant, to fulfill all of those demands, all that the Father had called upon the Son to do, all that the Father had promised to the Son for doing it, all that the Son had pledged Himself to undertake and shoulder in order to bring about the redemption of God's elect people. In the fullness of time, the eternal Son comes into this world and is incarnate and assumes to Himself a human nature. And He is revealed to us here as the one who knows and who knew the mind and will of the Father particularly. He saith, sacrifice and offering, thou wouldst not. The Son knew infinitely and entirely and incomprehensively all that was in the mind of the Father because as the triune God, undivided in their glory and being, he shares the mind of the Father. And in his incarnation as the God-man, as the one true God and true man, the mediator between God and man, we hear him saying in John 5, verse 20, the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things. That in fact, the, the Father's love for the Son is seen in this, that nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is concealed from him. Everything is laid open to him, that he is, he is shown and that he sees all that there is to know. And you have this illustrated. You'll remember going back to the, the book of Genesis. We're told, and it's, it's a rare description, that God called Abraham his friend. And one of the ways in which that friendship is manifest is in this. God says in heaven, with regards to all that was coming to the cities of the plain, how can I withhold these things from my servant Abraham? I must tell him. I must show him. And this is characteristic even in terms of our human experience of friendship. Friendship exudes this openness, this willingness to to open and disclose what's in our hearts, what's in our minds. We, we convey that to those that we trust and to those that are, are close to us and so on. Well, all of that resonates with our experience and it gives us a sense of what's happening here. Here is the Son and he, he has all at his disposal. He has the entire mind and will of God that is, is set before him. And he says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not. Or in the words of, of our translation of Psalm 40, you didn't delight in these. What does that mean? He's saying, you didn't delight in the sacrifices as in terms of 
the sacrifices themselves being the ends that were somehow in themselves to secure anything. No, they were all, as we've been learning throughout the book of Hebrews, pointing to something far greater. And to what were they pointing? To whom were they pointing children? They're pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, you didn't delight in these sacrifices as an end in themselves. They're unable to secure atonement, but rather a body hast thou prepared me. From eternity, the triune God had determined these things. The Lamb foreordained to take away sins. The one who is Jehovah that saves. A body has prepared him. Really, this stands in the place of reference to his whole human nature, including the body, a true body and a reasonable soul. He had to assume to himself the second person of the Trinity, a human nature, to bring it into union mysteriously with his own person in order that he might be the lamb, in order that he might offer himself as a sacrifice, in order that he might die, that he might shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice in the place of his own people. And so he is partaker of flesh and blood. He is infleshed, incarnate. We're told that that a body was prepared in the language of verse 5. A body hast thou prepared me. Prepared reaching way back beyond the days of Adam. Prepared in the eternal counsels of God. Prepared indeed by all three persons ultimately of the Holy Trinity. Here the reference is to the Father. The Son is speaking to the Father. Thou, Father, hast prepared me a body has prepared it for me. And so we see the one that's brought to the fore in terms of operation is the Father himself who is going before to prepare this thing. But we know as we open the pages of the Gospels and in Luke chapter 2 and so on, that it is God the Holy Spirit who actually affects this, who actually creates the body who actually brings into existence, who knits together mysteriously and miraculously within the womb of the Virgin Mary, the humanity of the Son of God. Father's preparing it. The the, the Holy Spirit is the one who is creating it, and it is God the Son who is assuming it. God the Son who is taking that human nature and bringing it into union with his person. All three are in fact at work here, and all three in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ are are reflecting what had been determined before in that covenant of redemption between the three persons of the Godhead. It had already been prepared, right? He the humanity of Jesus Christ didn't come about by ordinary procreation but through the undivided operations of the Holy Trinity. This is glorious. I mean, to speak of these things is to speak of things that should stagger the imagination. Right? We are tiptoeing around profound and sublime mysteries. 
And what a privilege that we're allowed to do so. What a privilege that God would invite us to come and to peer, however dimly, by faith into these things and to wonder at them and to indeed respond by falling down on our faces to worship and adore such a glorious God, the living and true God, the triune God of the Bible. It says here in verse 5, But a body hast thou prepared me. And if you're reading carefully, you think, Oh, wait a second, we sing the Psalms all the time, we read the Psalms all the time. We know Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 6, doesn't say in our translation, A body hast thou prepared me. But rather it says, Mine ears hast thou opened. Our margin says, or opened or, or digged. It could also be translated bored. And our translation of, of, of Psalm 40 actually reflects that Hebrew text. Right? It reflects what the, what the Hebrew Bible is saying there. What's written in Hebrews 10, of course, is under the inspiration, the direct and immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it would appear that Paul is actually drawing on the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint. And you think, well, well, what do we do with this, right? The, the one says that the ears are opened or bored, and the other says that a body is prepared for him, and so on. And it's not actually that difficult, right? You have to, uh, in order for ears to be opened or bored, that presupposes having a body, right? The two are, are inextricably connected to, to one another, but there's more than that. Because the reference in, in Hebrews, excuse me, the reference in Psalm 40, verse 6, it would seem alludes to a very familiar image within the Old Testament law. Namely, what's found in Exodus 21, verse 6, the ear being opened or the ear being bored. Exodus 21, verse 6 says, Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. So what's the, what's the context here? The context is the institution of slavery under the Old Testament scriptures. And when a fellow Hebrew was uh, brought into a position of slavery by another Israelite, uh, they were to serve in the capacity given to them. But after the six years, they're to be released if they're a Hebrew. And so if they're a Jew, they're to be released after those six years. And yet the law makes an allowance here. And it says at the end of that term of, of slavery, if, if the Hebrew servant is reluctant to be released, indeed it says, he says uh, in verse 5, if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then this provision was made where they were brought to the door and their ear was bored with an awl and they were made a perpetual slave of their master out of a loving desire to serve them in what would follow. That appears to be the imagery that is actually being referenced, the picture that is being referenced in Psalm 40, which actually fits perfectly with the context there. Right, The whole idea is, Lo, I come, and the volume of the book is written to me, to do thy will, 
O God. Right? I delight in the law of God. There's this love for the Lord and desire to serve him and to be submission, in submission to him and to, to live for him and in obedience to him and so on. And that fits with what we're reading here in Hebrews 10 as well. A body hast thou prepared for me is, is parallel to this idea of Christ saying, and my ear's been bored. You know, I have willingly and lovingly, out of love for my Father, I have come and been prepared to be God's servant. It's the same idea. Assuming a human nature for the purpose of the service of the Father. And to carry out all the will of the Father to the glory, the shared glory of the Father and of the Son. And so they actually speak to the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ took to himself a human nature like ours. He took our own nature unto himself. Not an angelic nature or any other but a true human nature. And this is utterly indispensable, as we saw previously in Hebrews. You'll remember the language of Gregory Nazianzen, one of the Cappadocian fathers, one of the patristics from central Turkey, now central Turkey, who said, whatever is not assumed is not healed. That the son had to assume to himself the whole of a, a true human nature, body and soul, in order for it to be redeemed. So it is that the Lord is, is doing that very thing, our nature without sin. Unless this were the case, our human nature without sin, there would be no atonement, no sacrifice, no salvation, no redemption, no heaven for any soul under in this world. What does this do for us, this divine preparation? What, what influence, what impact does it have upon us? Surely it should bring us as we come to the brink of these things, it should bring us to conclude how infinitely great is this salvation. How great, how so great is is this salvation. The infinite wisdom of God that is being brought to pass here, the infinite resources of God the Trinity and bringing about the salvation of his people. And that, this is important for those of you who are unconverted here this morning. However young or old you might be. Here you are sitting under the preaching of the word of God. And you of all people, the rest of us included. How is it that you can be told these things? Be shown these things? Be allowed to see these things? Well, to this end, that you would say, this business that the minister's always preaching, this Christ whom he's always preaching, this gospel that he's always preaching, this way of salvation, of Christ crucified that he's always preaching, it is evidently something phenomenally great. Because you see in this passage, heaven and earth are moved for the salvation of souls. None less than the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit undertake to bring about this momentous work. And that means, my friends, that all has been made ready. There's a divine preparation. Long before you were born, long before you ever thought of being born, 
long before you ever came into this auditorium, long before you ever had fall upon your human ears the message of the gospel, long before all of these things, the Lord was making preparation for the salvation of needy sinners just like yourself. And if the salvation of a sinner means so incredibly much to such a glorious God as the triune God. How could it mean so little to you? How can you consider it a trifle to think about your soul, the worth of your soul, the state of your sin-sick soul, the consequences of leaving this world with your soul and going without Christ into everlasting damnation. When God evidently places such great importance on the undertaking of the salvation of sinners, woe be heaped upon woe to any here who considered a mere trifle. The Lord is coming and he's grabbing and he's shaking and he's rattling you out of your sinful stupor and saying, sit up and pay attention. This is the most important business the world has ever known. And it is relevant for you. First of all, we have a divine preparation. It's a word for a Christian as well, for the Lord's people, for those in a state of grace. You, you think about these things, we, 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 we savor these things. And one of the influences that I think it should have upon us is this. We're thinking about the Father. We're thinking about the Son. We're thinking about the Holy Spirit. We're thinking about the triune God. We're thinking about all that he has determined in his inscrutable and unchangeable decrees. We're thinking about all that he has set by plan and then put in motion in sending of God the Son to be the incarnate word. One of the influences it should have on you, Christian, is this. If God be for you, who can be against you? This evaporates fears. This obliterates anxieties. This solidifies, strengthens, roots the believer in God himself. If this triune God be for us, who can be against us? Well, betide any of the great monarchs of the history of the world are those present and all of the powerful people in the world and everyone else that you can think of and all the other circumstances that you can think of. Who can be against us? Since God indeed is for us. What consolation is this? What, what peace and comfort this brings to the Lord's own people. So we have a divine preparation. Secondly, Divine pleasure, more briefly. Divine pleasure, verse 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Remember, the one speaking is the Son. And he's speaking to the Father. So it's the Son who's speaking. God the Son. The Father, the one who is the Father's delight from all of eternity. 
outside of time, when there was no such thing as beginnings and endings and continuings and developments and whatever else, the one who was the eternal delight of the Father, the one by whom and for whom heaven and earth were made, Jesus Christ, God blessed forever. God did not just send a prophet. He sent many of those into this world. He didn't just send an angel. He sent a few of those into this world. He didn't just send the apostles. He sent them as well. He sent his son. Which is to say that God himself came personally. And he came in flesh and blood. Wonder of wonders, not in the form of God. In the form of a servant. He came in the form of a servant, made under the law. We're told in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. We're being told that he didn't delight in the sacrifices themselves. It's not saying that he didn't delight in their appointment. He did. He's the one who, who ordered them, who, who sanctioned them, who commanded them. It's not talking about his lack of delight in the appointment of them, but he's saying he does not take pleasure in them in themselves as the, as the ends to atone for sin because he intended to bring that to pass in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't delight in these things. He delights in his own Son. And all that he has designed. These are the words of the Son just prior to the incarnation. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. The point is that it's reinforcing that what is God pleased with? Not these things. But it pushes to the fore that he is pleased with his son. You think of the the language. The father says so. We hear the heavens opened. And we can hear the voice of the father speaking at Christ's baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These sacrifices and offerings, no, they're not the thing that I take great delight in. But he, I am well pleased in. I am well pleased with. It is the sun that is the jewel of heaven. It is the glory of all of history. It is the sun who is the one that is the preeminent pleasure of his father. The question is, do you, my friend, delight in the sun? Do you delight in the Lord Jesus Christ? You can hear the voice of the father This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What say you of him? You know, what response do you have to these things? Do you add your own amen to it from the heart? Do you do so out of knowledge and sight and warmth and affection and love so that you can say not in word but in truth, I am well pleased with him as well. I delight in this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because your answer to that question, everything hangs in the balance here. You can never 
please the Father unless you are first pleased with His Son. And if you do not delight in His Son, and you do not confess His Son, and you do not honor His Son, all of which is language taken from the Gospels, the Lord will neither be pleased with you, the Lord will not confess you, the Lord will not honor you either. All these ordinances, the psalms we're singing, the word we hear read, the word we hear preached, the prayers, the sacraments, all these things are leading us to the one who is all in all. So that we sit down under the word of God and we say, I am well pleased. I am delighted in him. Whom to know is life eternal. The surpassing excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. That I may know him preeminently and above all. Because he is all my hope and all my help and all of my salvation. And there is no salvation apart from him, in addition to him, without him. He is the sum, the substance, the total of all of my salvation. And I have forsaken my own righteousness, and I have forsaken my own wisdom, and I have forsaken my idols and sin and everything else that I have brought with me. And I have taken him and all of him and nothing but him. And he alone is able, and his sacrifice alone is able to cleanse me from all of my sin and to reconcile me unto God, and to save my miserable soul, and to bring me into peace and joy everlasting in his presence. The whole world was created for the pleasure of the Son, right? That's the end of of Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Everything, the entire cosmos exists. Why? Not for you or me. It exists for him. It's for his own good pleasure that everything exists. And so the Father is delighted. He takes pleasure in the Son. You think of the language of Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. That's God the Father speaking. To the Lord Jesus Christ, he delights in him above all else. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in in John chapter 8 and verse 29, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. But I do always those things that please him. Of course he does. Of course he does. He could do no other because he could be no other. And all of his desire to please the Father results in his doing. Desire gives way to doing what pleases the Father. Well, my friends, here, this this divine pleasure that is found in the Son, which must be resonating in our own souls by saving grace, finding pleasure in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way. This is the gospel way to first of all be accepted in the Son, to be accepted in the Beloved, to be brought into union with Jesus Christ by faith through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
The Father says, I am well pleased in the Son. And the believer takes refuge in the Son and comes by saving faith into union with the Son. And therefore, God is pleased with his elect people in the person of his Son, through the person of his Son, by the person of his Son. This is the way in which we are found acceptable before him. This is the way in which we are able to have reception by him. It is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that then we are able to be well-pleasing in God's sight. First, in terms of our position, legally, in justification, but also in terms of sanctification. It's liberating. You think of Galatians 1 verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ, Paul says. He's saying, no. My whole aim is to live for the glory of God, to please him. You think of the language of of John 12 and verse 26. We have to be with the master and living before the master and serving the master with the aim of pleasing the master. And so the Christian in a state of saving grace, having been brought to see and know the Lord by faith, likewise live out of a desire to please him. This language is found everywhere throughout the the epistles, 1 Corinthians 7, 32, I would, I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that marrieth, he that is married careth for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He's saying that's just an example, right, of all these places where we find this, this language. We, we read that Enoch walked with God. We're told in Hebrews 11, verse 5, Enoch pleased God. He pleased him. You think of the language of what the Lord says to his people who appear before him on the last day in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he kicks open the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem and bids entrance to his people and says, come thou good and faithful servant. The expression and declaration of being pleased with his people. This is liberating for the Christian. These truths have a liberating influence. We do not live for ourselves. No longer have to be under the bondage and tyranny of all that that breaks us down under. We don't have to live any longer to seek to please other people as our chief end. But we live to please the Lord himself. Parents, your job is not to please your children. And to somehow win their affection and get them to be happy with you and do and say or not do and say what will somehow win their favor. Your job is to please the Lord. In doing so, you may have the pleasure of your children. Your job isn't to please your colleagues or your boss at work or your friends or whoever else are exerting pressure, whether overt or subvert. Not caving to the desire to merely please men, but living under the liberating light of a desire to please him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood.
Isaiah 26, the end of verse 8. We read these words. Yea, in the way of thy judgment, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. Right? Isn't this the language of the Psalms? Psalm 42, Psalm 63, Psalm 73. Psalm 84, we could go on and on. It's the language that's been put in our mouth to please the Lord. So we have divine pleasure. Thirdly, we have divine promptness. Verse 7, divine promptness. How be it, excuse me, back to Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 7, and this again is quoting from Psalm 40, Hebrews 10 verse 7. Then said I, that is Christ, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Lo, I come. That's the expression of readiness. It's the expression of willingness. It's the expression of eagerness, of divine promptness. This is the response of the Son to the Father. Lo, I come. I'm coming to do thy will. This is the Son's acquiescence, the Son joining in the counsels of God, the embrace of all those terms of the covenant of redemption that need to be carried out in the covenant of, of grace. I come to do thy will. That will is to take away the sins of God's people. That will is also to fulfill with perfect, flawless obedience the entire law of God. That debt that we owed to obey in all points without sin. The whole law of God, he came to do that. Both in terms of answering the curse of a broken law and fulfilling all of the demands of a law that has not been kept. In order that sinners might be accepted before the Father, here is perfect conformity. I come to do thy will. The psalm goes on, though not quoted here in Hebrews, that he delights in that will. He delights in the law of God. And so you, you see the divine promptness. This is expressive of the Son's willingness, the Son's eagerness. You look at Zechariah 6, and Zechariah 6, verse 7, is it? Verse 13. I'm missing it. So it says, it's that passage where it's speaking about the council or the covenant of peace. So it's speaking about the eternal counsel of God and how they were joined both together. The Father and the Son united in these things. It's a, it's a covenant between them both. Oh, what worth and value there is in, in all of this. Right? He delights as the blessed man in the law of God, in the word of God. Here we have the consent of the son and it's affirmed at the moment of his incarnation. When he's coming into this world, he is, he is affirming it. The Lord says, as you'll remember from Isaiah 9, 
Unto us a child is born, a son is given. And here, in the incarnation of Christ, the whole work of redemption is being laid upon his shoulders. And the son is saying and affirming and declaring, I delight to do this. I am eager to do this. I I will do all of thy holy will. Verse 7 says, in the volume of the book, it is written in me. Hebrews, excuse me, Psalm 40 says, in the volume of the book, it is written in me. And that reflects the Hebrew. In the volume, in the scroll of the book, it is written in me. Interesting, our translation here in the King James is, is following that Hebrew, really, and following as it's translated in, in the English. But in the Greek, it's actually reflecting the Septuagint again. It actually says, in the head of the book, in the Greek, in the head of the book. In other words, at the top of the book, at the beginning of the book. It is written of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is preeminent. He is first. He is first in eternity. He is first in the eternal counsels of God. But he's also first in the book of God, in the Holy Scriptures. David's the one writing Psalm 40. It's not referring to anything at his time or after him. It's referring to the Pentateuch. Lo and behold, in the volume of the book, at the head, at the beginning, it is written of him. It is Genesis 1.1. Jesus Christ is revealed as the Creator. Genesis 3.15, the beginning of the book. He is revealed as the seed of the woman. He's revealed as the Savior. And we could go on. All the whole Pentateuch is declaring the glory of Jesus Christ as, as a Redeemer. You come to the head, the beginning of the New Testament Scriptures, and the first words coming out of Gen- Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, in the genealogy, Jesus Christ is at the top. He is first. Because he is best. He is the one who is preeminent. And it's true of him as mediator. He gives his consent in his incarnate state as well. From the beginning. You say, well, wait a second, pastor. From the beginning. So he's, he's incarnate conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Is he giving his consent in his incarnate state from the beginning? The answer is yes. Your reply should be, show me. And I will. Psalm 22, verse 9. These are Christ's words. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. In Christ's humanity, He willed the will of God from the beginning of his existence. Obviously, in the growth of of his humanity, the growing capacities gave greater expression 
uh, to all of that. We're not denying that at all. But we're saying that his holy, sinless, impeccable will was bent to the will of God from conception. It's interesting that you come to the first recorded words of the God-man. And we, we, again, we approach these things with some measure of excitement, I hope. There you are in Luke chapter 2, and you have the account of Christ's birth and so on. We don't hear anything. The first time we ever hear anything from the Lord Jesus Christ is when he's 12 years old. And if you're like me, you, can't, you come to this passage in Luke 2, uh, in Luke 2 verse 49, and you, you read the words that he, you know, they saw him and they were, so on and so forth. His mom is quizzing him, where have you been? You've been lost. You know, why, why didn't you? You know, you've caused us all sorts of sorrow. And verse 49 says, and he said, and I feel like saying, stop. All right, get ready. Situate yourself. You know, get, get ready, prepare yourself, because you are about to hear the very first words ever recorded of the incarnate word. What is he going to say, children? When we first hear the voice of Jesus in this world, in the scriptures, what is he going to say? And he said unto them, How is it that ye, that ye sought me? Wist ye not? that I must be about my father's business. Of course, those are the words. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The very verse words are an affirmation of that. I'm here doing my father's business. I'm pursuing my father's will in all that I am about. And that's what we find in everything else that follows. John 4, it is my meat to do the will of my Father. John 10, I, I do the commandment that I have received of my Father. You see the eagerness of this all through the Gospels, that from the beginning and throughout the whole, Jesus is in ardent pursuit of the thing for which he came. And that it was to purchase the salvation of his own people. And so in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened? I'm pained till it be accomplished. I've got to get to it. I've got to be about it. I've got to pursue it. He says to Judas at the, at the, the, the feast, at, the, at Passover, what thou doest, do thou quickly. Get to it, Judas. Let's get on with this. My whole life I've been waiting for this. He rebukes Peter. Who says, not so, Lord, don't suffer. Get thee behind me, Satan. These, do not, these words do not savor that of God. He says at the arrest, Shall I not drink the, the cup that the Father hath given me? No, I'm going to drink it to its dregs. Christ is saying, give me the cup. This is what I've come to do. And I am eager to accomplish it. Isaiah 50, you want language? The Lord God hath, verse 5, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Divine promptness. Christ is in a holy pursuit with eagerness and willingness to pursue all the will of God. 
and seeking and securing the salvation of his people. And he doesn't just delight in that will. It says in this passage, I came to do, to do it. I'm going to actually do thy will. It's an active engagement and obedience, not just passively giving himself to suffering. There is that. But he came to do the will of his, of his Father. John 14, verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father. As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Again, that promptness. He loves the Father. He delights to do the will of the Father. My friends, what incredible value is there in such obedience? There's nothing like it. Nothing can ever be found like it in this world. Nothing can represent the value of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and how it casts your sin and mine into its true light. How repugnant and wicked and and abominable and evil our sin must be in contrast to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. How deplorable they are. When seen, and how beautiful, how exquisite his obedience was. And herein lies all your hope of salvation. Because all of your disobedience can only be met, matched, and surpassed by the obedience of the God-man, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is your salvation. It is lodged in the obedience of the Son who said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will. O God. My friends, we are seeing the glory of the Trinity, the glory of the triune God. And we're seeing that it shines forth in the glory of the only begotten Son of God. To behold his glory is to behold the glory of the whole Godhead. To be brought to a saving knowledge of him is to be brought and introduced to a saving knowledge of the whole Trinity. To be brought into fellowship with the Son is to be brought into fellowship with all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you want to talk to me now about the sufficiency of of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in contrast to the insufficiencies of the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices. They don't even appear on the same stage. The one can only point, as it were, from the other side of the universe to the surpassing glory of all that they prefigured and all that they are fulfilled in in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the surpassing nature of this sacrifice begins first within the councils of the Godhead itself. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship and adore thy glorious name. For there is none that is to be likened unto thee. O Lord, who are we to be given these privileges to cast 
our glance and eye into the mysteries that excel our comprehension. Melt us, warm us, inflame us, fire us, O Lord, with a holy passion for thy glory. Give to us, O Lord, to find in thy Son the one in whom thou art well pleased, the one in whom we must ourselves savingly be well pleased. And may he be discovered to us as all that our hearts could ever desire, and that in having him we lack nothing. For we ask it in his strong name. Amen.